Trevor Pierce is a youth worker uh, based in London. He once visited Bristol in the West Country uh, to run a summer Bible club. He asked a crowd of children, Now children, can anyone tell me one of the Ten Commandments? And a young boy thrust his hand into the air and confidently replied in a broad West Country accent, Lying, stealing, and showing your willy to people. Now every time I think about that answer, I wonder what it was that made those three things come into the boy's mind. And I've always suspected that there was perhaps an element of the confession going on. Lying, stealing, and exposing your private parts to people. Now it turns out that only two out of those three are in the Ten Commandments. Flashing is not named, although maybe at a stretch it could be included as a breach of the Seventh Commandment on sexual purity. But lying and stealing clearly are part of the Ten Commandments, and we instinctively know that these things are wrong, don't we? Lying, stealing. In almost every culture, those things carry shame. Lying and stealing are destructive to relationships. We're always saying this to our kids. Lying and stealing are destructive to community. But there's a difference. Most of us are actually willing to admit that we sometimes lie. And anyone who says they never lie, we know they're lying. But we have ways of making lying sound a bit better than it really is. Uh, here are some, some ways we do it in this country. Little white lies, exaggeration, spin, talking things up, bending the truth, or telling porky pies. Or as one of our kids says, porcupines. <laughs> telling porcupines. But what about stealing? Now, this is something that we don't care to admit to. We're willing to confess having a bad temper, a short fuse, a harsh tongue, and maybe even a roving eye. But have you ever heard anyone roll their eyes and say, oh, I'm terrible, you know, I'm just totally untrustworthy. I'm basically a thief. Now, one reason why we don't care to admit that is that most respectable people think they don't ever steal. They think they can tick this commandment and just move swiftly on. But that is only possible if you let the commandment stay at the most superficial level. And as we learned last week, the Bible's laws and principles are, to use a big word, paradigmatic. They're paradigms. They give a, a sample, a principle, and then it's up to the community to work out the implications and this is one such example. You shall never steal. What is being covered here? What is the range? What, in fact, is the reality of stealing? Now, scholars have pointed out that the first thing that may have come to the mind of someone in the ancient world was actually kidnap. Kidnap was a big problem in the ancient world. Obviously, slavery was too. And so, stealing a human being to hold them for ransom or to sell them into slavery is clearly forbidden by this commandment. And that would, in our own day, extend to trafficking. You know that the sexual trafficking industry is enormous in our planet. I think some 28 million people are trafficked. And then it extends into fraud and robbery. The Manchester context, interesting this week, the South Manchester Reporter, my favourite paper, uh, reported that fewer than one in ten burglaries in Greater Manchester, resulted in charges being brought against the crook. The first three months of this year, there were over 7,000 burglaries in Manchester, 
And guess how many of them resulted in a thief being jailed? 136. But in some ways that's not surprising. It's, it's very easy for people to get away. But what was interesting was that in the, the line, that in the burglary hotspots of our great city, there is a burglary more than once a week. So do you want to know where the burglary hotspots are? In case you're thinking of buying a house. Darley Avenue area of Chilton, the Floatshaw Road area of Bagley, Withenshaw, and the Trafford Park area. Each suffered a burglary more than once a week. So, we've just affected the house prices of those areas. Now, we can tut and shake our heads, but you know what the reality is? Even though everyone is welcome here at Grace Church, there are very few armed robbers in our congregation. Most people here are a long way from breaking and entering and even receiving stolen goods. Our stealing is much more acceptable. It's what we might call Pharisee theft. Now, the Pharisees were a movement of sincere, Bible-believing Jews who were very influential in Jesus' time. They were big on morality, and they were big on the Bible. They were keen on enforcing standards on themselves and on other people. But Jesus famously took them to the cleaners over some loopholes and double standards that they had introduced into the way they kept God's law. They wanted to avoid the radical demands of following God's law, whilst at the same time appearing to keep it. Is this sounding familiar? In Mark chapter 7, Jesus went after them about something that they called Corban. C-O-R-B-A-N. Corban. He said... God's law says you're supposed to look after your father and mother, honour your father and mother, and that includes financial provision, looking after them. But the Pharisees had created this little loophole. They said if some money is korban, it was kind of set aside for God's use, devoted to God, and it should stay in your own bank account and not be given to your parents. You see how they created a loophole? And Jesus rightly castigated them for it. Now how about us? What is the reality of stealing in our lives? Here is the acceptable face of stealing. Here are ten words for Pharisee theft. Ten verbs. Plagiarizing, copying, evading, pilfering, dossing, scrounging, milking, underpaying, overpricing, and sphinctering. Firstly, plagiarizing. Stealing someone else's intellectual property and claiming their work as yours is stealing. If you do it without giving credit, it's very easy to do if you're a student, especially in these days of cut and paste. It's deeply shaming when you're discovered. A teacher wrote at the end of a student essay, this essay was both original and great. Sadly, the parts that were great were not original, and the parts that were original were not great. What about you graphic designers, you musicians? The rule of thumb, I, I guess, should be that, to ask, how would I feel if it were discovered that someone else had used my work in this way? And preachers are guilty of this too. A man was actually dismissed in the United States a few years ago for using Tim Keller's sermons every time he preached. Over a hundred years ago, a rural Welsh preacher 
used American sermons and was once heard to introduce his text that day with these words. The other morning, as I gazed upon the Shenandoah Valley, he'd never actually left his home country of Wales. In the college that I attended, before coming, we moved to Manchester, a student had studied for three years, full-time, on a program and had almost finished his course when he took a ministry position and went to work for a church back in California. He'd almost finished his course and he decided to finish his last course by distance learning and his final essay of a three-year degree course, he plagiarised the entire essay, cut and paste and put his name on the top. Unfortunately for him, the teacher had seen the essay before. It went to the Academic Standards Committee and every course that he'd taken was discounted. He lost his degree and had to explain to his church why he didn't actually have a Master of Divinity. Now, closely related to plagiarism is copying, especially, I think, music and software. How many Microsoft products do you have that you have never paid for? How many songs do you have on iTunes or whatever vehicle you use that the artists have never received a penny for from you. Now, while I was preparing this sermon, I realized that I have been listening to and enjoying Stadium Arcadium by the Red Hot Chili Peppers for years, and I never bought it. So I bought it. Melissa, it's coming in the post. So if anyone from the Red Hot Chili Peppers is listening to this sermon on the internet, I'm sorry, guys, but I've made it good. You get the point copying. Evading. Now I'm talking here about taxes. Tax evasion. And I know that we all pay too much tax and VAT is terrible and Mr. Bumble was right. The law is an ass. Nevertheless Christians, according to the Apostle Paul, are to pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed and honour to whom honour is owed. So do you owe taxes? Are you keeping these simple commands with integrity? If you have to do a self-assessment tax return, is it honest? If you have a taxable benefit, is it declared? If you're asked to declare income and savings, do you? Pilfering. Now, pilfering is stealing stuff that typically has little value, so we sort of think they'll never miss it. One popular way of doing this is swiping office supplies. How many work stationary products have made their way into your home? How many biros? Using company resources, you know, some people steal toilet rolls from work to take home. Others have been known to take milk. One man used to boil a kettle at work, put the hot water in a thermos flask so he could get it home and make his tea in the evening without having to boil his own kettle. Padding out timesheets to make it look like you've worked longer than you have. Bigging up an expense account. Chucking in a few things that weren't really expenses. Another form of pilfering. Dossing. Now, dossing is lazing about at work. And it's stealing too. You're being paid for hours of work. Are you doing them? I once worked in an office with another Christian who was well known throughout most of the organisation because she almost never worked. You might think that's not possible. It was a big public sector organisation, 
No names, no pack drill. She arrived at her desk in the morning, put on some slippers, which were under the desk, which kind of gives you a clue into the mentality (laughs) of the workplace, put on some slippers and sat there all day, doing nothing. And that was in the days before the internet. Post-internet, I worked with another Christian who had a window open on his desktop with the cricket scores in real time, which he was following religiously, ready at the flip of a Control-Alt-Tab or whatever it is, to switch back to the work screen if a boss happened to come around the corner. Let me ask you, if you work in an office or something like that, are you confident that your boss could walk around the corner at any moment of the day, see what you were doing, and you would be proud of it? What about personal phone calls? Now, in most jobs, a few quick calls are considered reasonable. But what about an hour chatting to your girlfriend? I uh, used to work in a company that had a fantastic printer, uh, printer, copier, scanner, and a thing where you could bind documents. It was great. And I also found uh, a free resource where you could get Bible commentaries and theology books for free. So I downloaded one. And I went into the office early so I could print it out because it was nearly 500 pages. And so I could print it and bind it and have my own book for free on the company. And as I was binding this document, my boss came around the corner, surprised to see me in work so early, and said, what's that? That was not my proudest moment. She was a very senior member of the British government. She'd got into uh, the headhunting industry, and she was asking me, what is that that you've come in here so zealously to work on? And I had to explain that it was a Bible commentary. Pretty shameful. That was a combination of dossing and pilfering. Scrounging. What a great word that is. Scrounging is to seek to obtain something at the expense or through the generosity of other people or by stealth. Are there times when you use other people's resources at their expense just to avoid paying. A friend of mine used to, uh, in the days when records actually were made out of vinyl and they were about this big, one friend had a huge record collection and another friend, whenever he wanted to acquire a new album, would just go to his house and take it, knowing that he wouldn't miss it. Scrounging. In the Christian world, this often happens through borrowing stuff and not giving it back. How many Christians have built up their library by borrowing books that have not been returned? From me. (laughs) Today we're having an amnesty, okay? You can return them later. Milking. I don't want to offend anyone here, but it's possible to milk the state benefits system. Job seekers allowance and other benefits. Now, these are great British systems that were put in place to help people in genuine hardship until they got back on their feet. They were never intended to support an alternative lifestyle of subsistence living with no intention to work. Now, I know it's hard to find a job, okay? But how hard are you trying? What are you prepared to take? How much are you basically quite happy living on Job Seekers Allowance? I spoke to a couple of uh, bright graduates at another church in Manchester last year. I said, what are you planning to do now you've graduated? 
They said, well, it's quite hard to find work. I'm thinking I might do this, that, or the other. At the moment, I can't find a job that pays more than job seekers' allowance, so I'm just going to stay unemployed. That's stealing. That's stealing. We need to seriously question that kind of thing. What about those who employ others? Underpaying. The Bible says a fair day's work deserves a fair day's pay. The worker is worthy of his hire. Some of you here are in a position to employ people, or you will be in the future. Do you pay a fair wage, or do you muzzle the ox while it's treading out the grain? Professional people sometimes screw down tradesmen on price, and then expect the highest possible standards from them. And then the trades guys sometimes respond by cutting corners. My wife and I employed a man earlier this year to uh, sand down our banisters to repaint and to stain the banisters and to do the newel posts. And we, we agreed a price up front. We said, look, we're not doing day rate. We want a fixed price from you. And he gave us his price. It was very cheap. And as he worked, uh, one day turned into another day to another day. And eventually, he finished the job. And frankly, he was not getting paid enough. And if we had paid him what we'd said, we would have cheated him. So we said, we think we should pay you more. I have to say, it's the only time I've ever said that. <laughs> and the part of me was going, he was surprised. But you know what? That's a Christian witness. Paying well. The opposite of that is overpricing. If you own things and you want to sell them, are you a fair dealer? And you know that eBay is making traders of us all. Yet some Christians have been banned from eBay for repeatedly mis-selling. Saying something was better conditioned than it was. Saying it was newer or was new condition. Saying it was worth this much when it really wasn't. That's stealing. And finally, sphinctering. Okay, I know it's not a verb, but I needed ten verbs. The sphincter muscle. Now this is what happens when a tight person is in a situation where he just might have to get his wallet out. He can feel his sphincter muscle tighten. I might have to get my wallet out. Somebody in my family, no names, no pack drill, was once famous for going to the bar and never buying a drink. What about you? Do you tip generously? Do you ever buy a round? Do you ever buy lunch? Do you ever pay for a coffee? Are you generous? You shall not steal. That's the reality of stealing, ten words. And I realize that most of those things are just standard practice in the world around us. But that is precisely the point. God's people are called to a radical lifestyle that is countercultural whilst living in the middle of people. David Wells says, Worldliness is what makes sin look normal in any age and righteousness look odd. So how about... These ten words of Pharisee theft. How do you feel? Suddenly, I hope we realise that we're all thieves. We've all sinned. We've all stolen. We're all convicted. Guilty is charged. But this could easily lead to a kind of moralist exercise today. Try and make you squirm. And then focus on some behaviour modification. Here's ten things we can do to change ourselves. Firstly, slap yourself on the hand. Secondly, do ten press-ups and all that sort of thing. And that sort of thing, focusing on behaviour modification, only ever leads to harshness and pride. 
And that is not the point of the Ten Commandments, as we've said before. The point of these commandments is to show us how to live. They were given to God's people after they'd been set free. This is the maker's instructions on how to live a free life. How to flourish as a true human being. How to live a life of greatness. So let's go deeper. Why do we steal? What's at the root of it? Why do we steal? Why do even rich people steal? Isn't that funny? It's perverse. You ever thought about that? Celebrities. Why do they steal? There's an article in the Telegraph last year about a TV chef who was arrested after shoplifting three onions, two pots of discounted coleslaw from a branch of Tesco. He also stole cheese, bread, a newspaper, some wine, and a sandwich. He runs a gastropub in Oxford. He's a famous man. And he received a caution, but was quick to apologise. He said, was it a cry for help? I have been under incredible stress. I didn't have any time off over Christmas when these things happened. I flambéed every Christmas pudding personally. We're quick to make excuses. Other wealthy people have stolen. Lindsay Lohan was made to work at a morgue in Los Angeles as part of her sentencing for shoplifting a necklace. Peaches Geldof was caught stuffing makeup into a handbag at a branch of boots. Winona Ryder managed to secure $5,500 worth of clothing from a department store. She's capable of paying for it. Why do we steal? Why? What's at the root of it? You know, we're only going to change if we can understand the motivations for behavior. What's the motivation to steal? What's the root of stealing? Each one of these points gets shorter, by the way, in case you're worried about your lunch. The root of stealing. Now, some people think that the root of stealing, the heart of stealing, is greed. We want more than we have, so we take it. Now, that is getting warm, but that, I don't think, is the heart, because it doesn't explain why we are greedy in the first place. Other people say, well, stealing is driven by covetousness. Covetousness is the desire to have something else. Typically, it's an over-the-top desire to possess something, usually belongs to another person. And yes, covetousness does generate stealing, but it doesn't explain why we would covet in the first place, does it? We still haven't got to the root. I've been thinking about this a lot, and I want to suggest that the root of stealing, the real fundamental motive, is discontent. Discontent. Dissatisfaction with my life, what I have, what I am. Lack of satisfaction with my circumstances. Discontent with my bank balance. Discontent with my technology. I've only got an iPhone 4 and I want a 5C or whatever the latest thing is. Discontent with my body, my face. Discontent with my partner or lack of a partner. Discontent with my job or lack of a job. Discontent with my stuff, craving for more. Lack of satisfaction with my wardrobe. Lack of satisfaction with my situation in life. And the feeling that if only I had more, I would fix it. And it's that deep well of discontent that makes thieves out of us. Discontent that drives us to steal. Towels from the hotel. Soap. There's something inside that just wants more. If only I had more of 
A, B or C, that would fix me. But it won't fix me. The desire for more is like a cracked jug. It always needs filling and it's never full. The cure is not to get A, B or C, either by stealing or borrowing or pilfering or scrounging. The cure lies in being satisfied. The cure for discontent is contentment. And then you would never need to steal again. So where are you going to get this contentment? Where are you going to get this contentment which will deal with the root of stealing? We will only get this this kind of deep contentment when we believe that Jesus Christ is enough. When we don't just believe the facts about the gospel as Matt was saying earlier but we believe that Jesus Christ is is enough. He's enough for us. He's enough for me. He's done all that I need. He's given me all that I really need. And he will do so in the future. Jesus Christ is enough. We spend our whole lives living for self, trying to organise our life around ourselves, living for self, indulging in sins that basically reveal that we're at the centre of the universe. And we've pushed God out. And we try and manipulate situations and other people to please us. But it never works, so we get more and more frustrated. We're, we're, we're bound up, we're enslaved by our sin. Jesus Christ knows you, who you are. He knows everything about you. He's God incarnate. He knows all your secrets. And knowing you for who you are, he willingly and strongly and deliberately came to this world, lived a perfect life, and went to a cross of shame. Guilty, vile and helpless, we, spotless Lamb of God, is he. Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a saviour. Is he enough? If the root of stealing is discontent, and the only way to contentment is to believe that Jesus Christ is enough, then it's really very simple. Is Christ enough for you? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Do you rely on him? Or are you still trusting in your own efforts to make something out of life? Loving yourself and relying on your goodness. Do you believe that Jesus left the throne of heaven for you? Do you believe that he who was rich became poor for your sake? So that you, through his poverty, might become rich? Do you believe that when he shed his precious blood on the cross... When he suffered and died in agony, he was doing so to forgive you and free you. If you believe that, then do you yet believe that Jesus Christ loves you and he will provide for you everything that you need in life? He wouldn't do the, go to the cross for you and then leave you out to hang and dry. This week, a few of us, a couple of us were on a conference with Acts 29 Europe, a thrilling conference. One of the speakers, Steve Timmis, gave an illustration from earlier in his life when he was in financial hardship. He was bringing up a young family. They didn't have enough money to pay the bills. He was sitting at his desk one day with his elbows on the desk, praying. And he prayed. He he caught himself praying these words. Lord, if you love me, send me a check. And he said, no sooner were the words out of his lips than he realised as if God was speaking to him there and then. As if God replied, If you love me? If you know that Jesus, 
came to the cross for you, do you have any doubt that he loves you and will provide for you? So the real question is, is Christ enough? Are you contented with what the Lord has given you? Is he enough? If he is, then you can grow in contentment and be generous. You can be free of always wanting to hold on to your resources. You can live a full, flourishing life. If Christ is not enough, then you'll always be tempted to steal. And that's why rich people and celebrities steal, because they never have enough. Is Christ enough for you? If so, then you can trust the providence of God to look after you, knowing that he's got your back. He's your father. He knows every hair on your head. He knows how many there are. He knows what you need. Jesus said, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink or about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than them? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin, yet not even Solomon in all his glory was arrayed like one of these. And if God so clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is cast into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious. Why worry? Jesus Christ is enough for you, for me. So if you're not trusting him today, come to him today. Come in faith. Ask him to forgive you. If you know that he's given everything you need and he will provide all you need in the future, then you can rest in him. And I have experienced this in, to some measure in my life. At one point, a few years ago, we had nearly £20,000 in stock market investments. We had several thousand pounds in savings accounts. We had a rented house that was yielding a nice profit every month. We were living in America. We were enjoying an exchange rate of nearly $2 to the pound. Those were the days, my friend. In the space of a few months, most of it fell apart. The stock market crashed, and in the scramble, I made some disastrous investment decisions. We lost nearly all of our investments. Quickly, as you can imagine, the savings evaporated. The pound sank like a stone against the dollar. The boiler broke in our house back home, and a neighbour threatened to sue us if we didn't build a £5,000 retaining wall along the boundary. You know what happened to all that money? It just went. And I was a lover of money. I used to go into my, my investment account and look at it and, and literally feel my heart changing as I saw the investments going up and the dividends coming in and the sort of chart where you see things get growing in value and you could see on one side what you invested on and on this side what you got and you could see it a false sense of security coming from it or I was a lover of money and I dreamed of making quick profits. I actually lost sleep thinking about how to day trade. You know what? I had to fall out of love with money in order to fall in love with the Father and Jesus Christ to taste their provision. It had to be taken away from me. Christ is enough. And when you realize that, a third and final thing happens. There can be reform of stealing. Change. 
transformation. Now, the greatest New Testament text about stealing is found in a single verse in Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 28. If you want to look at it, in the church Bible, it's on page 1177, and we're going to finish our time together here, because this wonderfully combines the negative of the Eighth Commandment with the positive. Ephesians 4, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that, what? So that he can please God? So that he can pay his bills? No. So that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him work, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So there are three steps for a thief to reform his ways or her ways. What are the three steps? Stop, work, and give. It's like stop, look, and listen. Stop, work, and give. Stop, stealing, work, and then you've got something to give. So, question for the audience. What is the opposite of stealing? Giving. The opposite of stealing is giving. And here we find the flip side of the commandment. Remember that every commandment has a negative prohibition and a positive implication. Negative prohibition, you shall never commit adultery. Positive implication, enjoy married sex to the max. Negative commandment, you shall never murder. Positive implication, cherish life. Eighth commandment, you shall never steal. Positive commandment, work and give. Be generous. So to be able to give to those in need, you have to work so that you have something to share. Now, some Christians I've detected think that it's a bit dodgy to get a well-paying job, high-paying job. They sort of think that it's a bit unspiritual to have an advancing career and want a good salary and a big bonus. They think that somehow to get those things is somehow unspiritual. That is nonsense. It is great to earn money. It is great to have a big bonus. It's great to have a big salary, if you can. The Reverend Dick Lucas, leader of the Bible-believing church in this country over the last few decades, told me once, over coffee, that most of the big Bible-teaching initiatives, like Word Alive and the Proclamation Trust, were funded by two men. Most of these things are underwritten by two men who work in the city of London, and they have a gift of making money. Wouldn't you like that gift? They also had the gift of giving it away. See, the issue is not money. The issue is the heart. If you were entrusted with a lot, would you be generous? The Bible says, not money is the root of all kinds of evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And if you're given a lot of money and you love God, look out, you're going to do a lot of good with it. So the final question then, in closing, is what can make this change in our hearts, this reform 
of stealing, this, this transformation, this turnaround? What can change us from grabby people, self-serving people, tight-fisted people, to open-handed, generous, self-forgetful people who give? What can turn a thief into a giver? Only one thing. A crucified Lord. Luke 23 says this. Two others who were criminals, thieves, were led away to be put to death with Jesus. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to get his clothes. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he's the Christ of God, his chosen one. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And there was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. And one of the criminals, one of the thieves who were hanged, railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see what Jesus is like? Even at the moment of extremity, the crushing rejection from God the Father, the scorn of people, the naked shame of the cross, the pain and the agony, he's still asking God to forgive people, and he still has room in his heart for a dying thief. Today you will be with me in paradise, he says. We're going to die, we're going down, but you're coming with me. The first convert into heaven on Jesus' coattails is a thief. And yet we know from the Bible that there are no thieves in heaven. So how does this work? It must mean that the forgiven man is no longer a thief. He's no longer a thief. At that moment, when he says, Lord, remember me, he has been changed. And if he'd somehow been taken down from the cross and released, he would have been a changed man, a thief no more, a follower of Jesus, a disciple. The good news is not just that we've been forgiven, as amazing and awesome as that is, not just that we've been forgiven, but that forgiveness transforms. When you know that Jesus, knowing exactly who you are and what you're like, willingly went to the cross for you, then you were broken up and you are born again to newness of life. Then you're free to stop stealing be contented, to work, to give, to share, to live a generous life, an honest life, a life of integrity that is itself a transparent advert for the grace of God. May God give us the grace to live that kind of life and to love that saviour with all our hearts. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, gracious Father, we uh, see the commandment, we see it lifted up. At first we think it doesn't really apply to us. Then we realize it really does. We realize we've hidden under a sham of respectability. And our hearts 
our thieving hearts. And yet we thank you that Jesus forgave the dying thief. That he went to the cross for such as that. And we thank you that you, knowing what we are like, have called us to belong to him. Have sent your spirit to change us. And so we give you our praise and thanks and we give you our lives once again. Help us to live for him this week. New lives, changed lives, lives that are full of glory and grace and full of gratitude for you for all you've done. And Lord, if there are any here who know they are not currently belonging to Jesus but want to be, would you bring them in today? Would you save them today? Would you call them to yourself now that there may be great rejoicing in heaven and here in this room as well. For we ask it in his name. Amen.